As you take a seat, take your Bible and go to Mark chapter 12. Now, um, given that my, my time with you is uh, only three Sundays left, uh, not gonna, we're going to remain in Mark for at least the next two, and, uh, but we're not going to go necessarily in sequential order. So uh, this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 28. I'm going to hit some I'm going to hit some highlights uh, throughout the rest of chapter 12, now and then on the 25th. Uh, next Sunday, my family and I will be out, but uh, Dennis Garcia, our church planning catalyst with the North American Mission Board, who lives in Las Cruces, will be here uh, sharing a little bit about Annie Armstrong and about some of the uh, church planning opportunities and the impact that that, uh, that offering is having across North America. And uh, Dennis has been here before. He's a He's a good friend, and you will appreciate uh, him and be blessed by him. Um, well, this morning, we're, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And this is Jesus' teaching on the greatest command. Now, now you know, as a culture, we, we tend to be obsessed with the greatest and the best. Uh, you know I'm a baseball fan. In, in baseball, may, maybe more than any other sport, there are constant discussions about who the greatest to ever play the game is. Uh, you know, is it, is it Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Willie Mays, Ty Cobb? Is it somebody who's, who's in the game today? And then you move into discussions about, well, who's the greatest player in today's game? Is it Mike Trout? Is it a guy named Bryce Harper? We have discussions about who our greatest president in history is. is it George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, FDR, someone, someone else? How do we measure greatness? Then moving it down in, in, in smaller scale, every time I have a friend who comes to visit Alamogordo, I'm asked a couple of questions. First of all, what's the best activities to do with a family? And what is the best Mexican food restaurant? Hands down, every time someone comes into town, I, I get asked those, those two questions, right? What can we do as a family? And what's the, best, what's the best Mexican food? Now, this obsession with the greatest is really nothing new, right? In fact, I would say when, uh, when, when our founding fathers founded this country, they set out believing they were founding the greatest country in the history of the world, um, and so the, the, this obsession with, with being the greatest or knowing what the greatest of something is is nothing new. And in fact, in our passage this morning, we see this going all the way back to the first century at least where a scribe came up to Jesus. A scribe was a religious lawyer. And he comes up and he asks Jesus, what is the greatest command? In all the Bible, all the Old Testament, what is the greatest command. And we're going to see Jesus' response to that this morning. So if you will, stand with me as we read the word of the Lord together this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the scribes approached, and when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people to open up your word. We pray that it would speak to us this morning. That we would gain an understanding, not, not just of, of what Jesus said was the greatest command, but we would, we would gain an understanding this morning of what that looks like in our own lives, to love you completely and to love other people as ourselves. May we be men and women as followers of Christ who model this well. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now this, um, this loving God and loving others, if, if you were paying attention at all uh, to the college basketball, uh, the, the NCAA tournament, and the, the national championship game that happened Monday night, this, this passage, even though it wasn't specifically laid out, this, this passage gained some recognition through Baylor's, uh, Baylor University's um, run to the national championship because they had a... Their theme as a team was joy, and it stood for Jesus, others, yourself. Jesus, love God completely, love others as you love yourself. And uh, I, for, for me personally, I thought it was pretty cool. I know we have a couple of Baylor grads in the house. So, <laughs> um, but, but for me, it was, it was really interesting to see a uh, a college national championship played, by the way, between a Baptist school and a Catholic school, um, and the the right side won, uh, right? So, <laughs> um, but but to see as in post game interviews, players not talking about how great they were, but how great God was. Now, 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 listen. God's greatness doesn't hinge on a religious school winning the national championship, right? But but to have players and coaches who recognize that and to recognize that he's good, win or lose. It was a message we don't see, especially in, on that arena, um, on that stage, very often. And it, it all boils down to this, what, what Jesus teaches here. Now, in our story, we see a scribe approach. And as I mentioned earlier, a scribe is a, is a religious lawyer, someone who would have been an expert in the law and would have been able to to guide people and make judgments about what was correct according to the law, what was not correct according to the law. And, and so often, in the Gospels, the religious leaders are painted almost as bad guys, and, and for good reasons, because often we see them trying to come and trap Jesus in something that he says. That was certainly the case a few weeks ago when, when Jesus was asked about whether or not it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And we, we saw specifically that they were trying to trap him in his words and get him to say something that, that even though these, uh, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't agree with one another politically 
or socially or in any other way, except that they disliked Jesus. So in that case, they came to him trying to trap him. In, in this instance, in Mark's gospel, we don't get that sense here. It, this scribe, we're told, watched them debating in verse 28, saw Jesus debating with others and saw that Jesus answered them well. In other words, perhaps he was maybe at one point a skeptic, but now he's become what we might call a seeker. He's come to Jesus with this question. It seems not trying to trap him, but out of a genuine curiosity about what Jesus has to say about the law. And he asked Jesus a question that to us may be a bit baffling, right? Which command is the most important of all? Because we might be tempted to answer, well, all of them are important. They're all in God's Word, and therefore we can't set aside anything that God's Word declares. But we need to understand the way that Jews in the first century understood the law. See, the rabbinic tradition identified 613 commands in the first five books of the Bible. Now, we know those, those books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, known as the law. Okay? 613. Now, how would you like to be the guy who is figuring out how everyone was to obey these 613 commands? But they, they broke it down a little bit. So, of those 613 365 of them were negative. We would know those as the thou shalt nots, right? 248 of them were positives, thou shalts. And then after that, so just in between the 365 don'ts and the 248 do's, then they had light and heavy commands. Light commands were those things that you should keep, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's God's word after all, right? We shouldn't neglect it, but, but light, light commands were really those that, you know, these are, these are really good ideas. Heavy commands were the, you better keep these or else. Now we have a scribe who comes to Jesus, an expert in the law, even one who was described as a religious lawyer who made it his life's business to know the law, to know these 613 commands, and to do his best to live them in his own life. Can you imagine the daily burden that would come with keeping all 613 commands? 365 negative. That's a a don't for every day of the year. 248 pods, so I can't do these things, and I should do these things, but there are some that are light, so you know, if I, if I do one of the light things I'm not supposed to do, maybe that's still a sin, but maybe it's not that bad, and then heavy ones, which I, if I do that, do I even know God at all? So you can see maybe why this scribe comes to Jesus with this question. Jesus, of these 613 commands, Which of these is the most important? We see Jesus answer with what he calls the greatest command in verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important 
is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, Jesus' words here, by the way, he's not just pulling this out of thin air, right, and saying, hey, I think this is a good command. No, he pulls this directly from a passage that all Jews would have known because it comes out of Deuteronomy 6, a passage that was called the Shema. Shema is uh, the Hebrew word for here, and it's the first word of this passage, Hebrews 6, or Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. This was a passage that Jews uh, in the first century, and actually even up to today, recite every morning and evening. In other words, they know this. And this is what Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 says. Jesus is, it's almost a direct quote. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, now Jesus quotes this in four parts, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't think we have to dive into that too deeply other than to simply say that Jesus is saying, what, and what this passage teaches is that we are to love God with our whole selves, with everything that we are. Now, there have been books written about what does it mean to love God with your heart? What does it mean to love Him with your soul, with your mind, with your strength? And I think there's some validity in, in considering those individual parts, but, but, but I think we step into some, some dangerous territory where we start to compartmentalize these rather than to simply say we're to love God with everything that we are, right? We are holistic people. If you've ever uh, tried to uh, um, go into a diet program or any kind of a workout program, uh, I think you'll realize that you can't necessarily separate your mind from uh, the physical side of things, right? In other words, you have to, you'll hear coaches oftentimes say you have to be in the right mindset, right? Sometimes the, the hardest part of getting into something is we have to psych ourselves up for it, right? We've got to get our mind ready for what the body's about to endure. We're, we're not compartmentalized beings. We are, we, we are holistic beings, which is why oftentimes physical suffering can affect spiritual lives so much, either in positive ways or in negative ways, right? We... We, we, we are complete people. Therefore, we're to love God with our whole selves. And then Jesus gets to the second part, which is not, I don't think he really means this as a second command. It's really a 1B. All right? so, if, so if the most important command, 1A, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 1B is, is attached to it. And this comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where he says this, love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, look at, look at Leviticus 19, 18, because this, there's a little bit more context here that's important. It says, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when, when, I, when I read that, that hits a little bit harder than just love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, yeah, sure. Yes, I, I, leave, I love others. Sure I do. Who doesn't love people? I mean, I don't like them, but I love them. 
And yet, what does Leviticus say? Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you might recall that in Luke's gospel, the question immediately arises here, well, who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, then who qualifies to be my neighbor? Is it people like me? Is it people who look like me? Is it people who think like me? People who believe like me? And that leads Jesus to launch into the story that we know as the Good Samaritan. And in that story, there was a Samaritan. If you know anything about biblical context, you'll know that Samaritans were pretty much hated by everybody. Jews considered them a a half-breed who were half-Jewish, half-Samarian, and, and that, so in, in Jewish minds, that represented someone who stepped outside of the Jewish law and married an outsider, and now you've had a child who's an outsider. And so, therefore, Jews didn't really like them because they were half Sumerians. Sumerians didn't like them because they were half Jews. And so, Samaritans were like outcasts of outcasts. So you have a man walking down the road who's robbed, who's beat up thrown into a pit. Before long, a priest walks by. Now keep in mind who Jesus' audience was often. It was was religious leaders. And this this priest walks by, sees this man beat up. By the way, the priest had a biblical right, biblical call to take care of uh, those who were less fortunate. But he's too busy, probably on his way to a committee meeting or something. And so it says he passes by. Then a Levite, another religious leader. Again, Jesus' audience, man, these these are the good guys, right? These are the ones who are supposed to care for people. Surely he'll take care of this man. But no, he passes by on the other side of the road. Too busy, too important. Maybe he just acts like he didn't see anything, right? Maybe like I've done before, maybe you have before as well at a stoplight when there's somebody standing there with a sign, it's just straight ahead, right? And then a Samaritan comes along. Keep in mind, Samaritans were not well respected. They were not well liked. His audience probably thinks, well, this, this no good Samaritan is probably going to add insult to injury and just like maybe rob him a little bit more, beat him a little bit more. And instead, what does he do? He takes care of him, binds up his wounds, takes him into town, takes him to a hotel, says, I'll, I want to take care of his needs. And, and when I come back, if there's anything that's, that's been charged above and beyond what I've already provided, then I will, I'll pay for that as well. And then, then the question that Jesus asks is simply this, who was a neighbor to this man? And you can kind of sense the, the religious leader's uneasiness because of what Jesus just did to them and the story he just told. And one of them says, well, the, the, the man who took care of him. The answer to that is, Those with whom I come in contact with are my neighbors. Regardless of what they look like, regardless of what their socioeconomic status is, regardless of what they think or what they believe, 
Leviticus 19.18 would command us the same thing. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Isn't it interesting that Jesus connects these two? When asked what the greatest command is, because he's, he's God, he could have stopped at, at love the Lord your God. And, and people would have probably thought, I've made it. I've arrived. I've loved God completely. I couldn't possibly love God more than I already do. But no, he, he hitches this trailer to that command. And, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. And he finishes up verse 31 by saying, there is no other command greater than these. See, we've not loved God completely until it affects the way we love others. Or or to put it another way, if we don't love others, we've not loved God. Completely. And it just might be, if I'm, if I'm understanding this passage correctly, it just might be that the way we love other people is a barometer of how much we love God. But pastor, have you met other people? Yes, I have. There are some people that are really difficult to love. You are correct. No, no debate there. But, but you know, I'm, I'm willing to bet that if we were to be honest, we might have to admit that there are times that we are difficult to love as well. And if you would say absolutely not to that, there's a passage about lying in Exodus chapter 20 as well. God's top 10 list. That, one may, that, that one's in there, right? And, and here's the thing, right? So, so we are called to love others as ourselves. We are called to love others the way that God has loved us. And if you think you're difficult to love to other people, think about, think about God and all of his perfection. who sent his only son to the earth to pay for your sins and my sins. As John 3.16 tells us, to show his love, to declare his love for us. And so our, when, when we find ourselves lacking in love for other people, it just might be that we've lost sight of who God is and who we are and the way that he's loved us. Now, let, let me really quickly, since we're talking about loving others, let me make a couple of clarifying points here. Um, because for some reason, our culture has gotten to the point where we believe as a culture that to love someone uh, means that you approve of everything they do. Which is not the case, right? If if you see your three or four-year-old about to reach up and put their hand on a hot stovetop, the most loving thing that you could do is to swat their hand out of the way, right? 
you see someone playing in the street, the most loving thing that you can do is maybe go grab them, perhaps somewhat violently, and get them out of harm's way as fast as possible, right? Wouldn't be loving to just sit there and watch somebody get hit by the bus while you're going, well, that was a bad idea, right? Saw that coming. No, no. So that doesn't mean that we give approval or that we enable people to continue making good choices. In fact, the New Testament would tell us that we are to speak the truth in love. Part of loving others is pointing them to the truth. Even in a truth-averse culture, right? Which would say, uh, well, my truth is true for me and your truth is true for you. You know what I've found out, though? Those people really don't believe that. If you don't believe me, try to go steal something of theirs, and they become absolutists very quickly, right? So the most loving thing that we can do is point people to true hope, true life in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't mean that we reject those who reject the truth of the gospel, right? In some cases, perhaps our Proclaiming the truth is going to be just as much what we model for them and how we love them as what we tell them. Telling is important. I've never, never known anyone who lived such a good moral life that somebody walked up to them and said, you know, you're such a good Christian that I just, I I placed my faith and trust in Jesus last night because of the way you lived your life, even though no one's ever told me about your, your, your model of life was so amazing. No, that doesn't happen. We have to, we're called to preach, called to proclaim the truth. We're also called to back it up in the way that we love others. And in fact, as Jesus declares here, we have not loved God correctly, completely, until his love flows through us into other people. Look at me at verse 32. Again, keep in mind that so many of the religious leaders were, were put off by Jesus or they were, they were just so angry with him for messing with their religious system that, that they, they couldn't wait for him to be out of the way. And, and keep in mind, this is happening in, in Holy Week. As Jesus is now just probably 48 hours or so from the cross, he's teaching this. And this particular scribe in verse 32 says this, You are right, teacher. We don't have very many people saying that to Jesus in, in the New Testament. You are right. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe was struck by Jesus' words. And he recognizes that these commands, that, that loving God, loving others, he says is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, now think about that coming from a religious leader under the Jewish sacrificial system. That's a big time statement that he makes here. 
And Jesus turns to him and says this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, this man who who thought that he was saved by his ability to keep the law is so close to moving from just religious observance to real life in Jesus. Jesus says you're not far. And, and, and implicit in that, in, in, in that statement is the, the encouragement. Now keep going. Keep going. You're, you're not far. Don't stop now. You know, maybe there's some in this room, maybe there's some watching online this morning who are not far from the kingdom of God. Maybe you've been, as it's so easy to do, you've been caught up in keeping the rules, being religious. While these can be good, they they can also, it's possible they can keep us from the Savior. Checking off the boxes. Living a good, upright, moral life. That, in some cases, that can be a hindrance to turning to real life in Jesus. Why? Because we can think, I can do this on my own. I can live such a good life. The Bible would say, no, absolutely not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. If that's you, you can come to him today realizing that perfection, checking off all the the boxes, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, isn't the point of the Christian life. The point of the Christian life is trusting in Jesus who lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live, who died the sacrificial death that you and I deserved. You can do that by praying something like this, God, I'm a sinner. I want to be forgiven. I believe Jesus Christ, your son, died for my sins and is alive right now. I turn away from my sin and now confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and receive him into my life. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to control my life and I thank you for giving me eternal life. If you'd like to know more about following Jesus, I'll be down front as we stand and sing in a few moments. If you're worshiping with us online, there's a number there on the screen that you can text. We'll get back with you this week. We'd love to share with you how to Trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, for those of us who are already believers, maybe maybe you have a hard time loving others. If that's you this morning, I would simply encourage you to confess that to the Lord. Right? Confess it. Lord, I have a hard time loving other people. Maybe there's a specific person or persons that you have a difficult time loving. You're not going to shock God by that realization, right? By that revelation. He already knows. Confess that to the Lord. Maybe there's even someone in your life to whom you need to confess, I've not loved you well. Maybe this morning you need to simply ask you to help 
Ask the Lord to give you strength to help you love Him more completely by loving others more compassionately. May we be people. Those who wave the banner of being followers of Christ. May we be people who are known by our love for God and who are known by our love for other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the wonderful opportunity we have to gather together and open up your word. And I pray you would use it this morning to shape us and mold us into people of love, people who love you completely, who, who obey not out, of, not out of a hope that we can gain some righteous standing because of our behavior, but who obey you out of our love for you. May we be people who love others because you've loved us, who model what it looks like to truly love other people. Father, maybe each of us in the, in the room has someone that, whom we'd say, I, I struggle to love this person well. I struggle to, to, to reflect God's love in my life to this person. If that's the case, help us to Repent. And remind us over and over and over again the love with which you've loved us. The gap that you spanned to show your love for us. May we be people who love others well as followers of Christ. We ask all these things in his mighty name. Amen.